The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning and welcome to America's Web Radio and David's Pick. And that means that we have a veteran in the studio with us today. And uh, we'll start with Larry in just a few minutes after we do our the thing that we do every Thursday morning on David's Pick. And that is that uh, we remember my best friend, uh, J. Roy Ritchie, who recently, or I say recently, about six months ago, died of uh, complications from Agent Orange. And we do this for... Out of respect for J. Roy, but everybody that served in Vietnam and the effects of, and have the effects of Agent Orange, which uh, uh, Larry does, and uh, we'll go into some of that. And uh, we'll be back right after a moment of silent prayer. Amen. And the other thing that we always do, and uh, I'm sure Larry will agree with me, that uh, it's that last half a mile as you're doing the forced march or double timing or whatever, that um, what got us all through it was our cadence calls, our Jodies. And so we play a Jody. Okay, well, enough of the the cadence call for this morning, and uh, I guess uh, really the weather that we've been having recently, uh, you need something to get you up and get your heart going, and uh, I've, uh, I was stationed in uh, Fort Ord, California, so we did a lot of running in the rain, and I'm sure you did some running in the rain in uh, Nam and wherever you did your uh, uh, basic training and so forth. So, Larry, welcome to America's Web Radio. It's a pleasure having you. Thank you, David. I'm glad to be here and appreciate you inviting me. Well, it's going to be fun, and uh, Larry is an author, and we'll get into that in a moment. But uh, first things first, uh, uh, Larry came in, and he was a Chinook pilot in, uh, in Vietnam, and... Uh, We'll, we'll get into a little bit of his history and also the fact that uh, he's written a book and we're going to publicize that. And if you don't mind, Larry, it'll, it would like to put it on our list of uh, 
recommended reading that's on our website. That would be great. We will appreciate uh, that. We'll go into how people can get it and so forth. Um, so, in reading your bio, you were surrounded by the military growing up. Your father was a uh, was active duty and uh, career, and uh, then your brothers have been in the military and. Uh, then you jumped into the military, and I would assume that we're probably about the same age. Probably close. I turned 75 on Monday. <laughs> well, I turned 75 January the 2nd, so I couldn't get a whole lot closer. <laughs> no, that's, that's pretty good. Pretty interesting. Uh, and um, a whole different time. Uh, and, and, oh, there are, as I mentioned to you on the phone, I generally don't ask any hardball questions or anything that would get either one of us in trouble but um, I will ask one hardball question and I don't think I mentioned to you mentioned this to you before but with your experience I don't know how many uh, associations you're involved with or if any uh, military the VFW or, or American Legion or any of those but I'm sure you still correspond with or have friends that you served with. And uh, can you, do you know of, or can you name any one veteran that you're associated with that can tell only one story? No, I've uh, been around veterans and active duty basically my whole life and know the answer to that and probably could tell many yeah. once you get them going yeah <laughs> yeah you get six vets around the table and uh you've got about 600 different stories that are about to pop out if necessary That's but true. uh no and and this is something that we stress quite frankly and you certainly have the right to disagree with but um it's our feeling and philosophy that uh our veterans are our history books today and if you're a veteran and no matter where you served what you served anything if you've got kids or grandkids get them up on your lap and tell them about your service and what the flag means to you and do the job that we used to get in civic classes and and our even our grade school and high school classes that uh, we're just not getting it today I'd, i'd venture to say that if we did a waters world and type of thing and the man on the street and particularly young folks they have no clue what the flag is all about and uh pardon me go ahead i I, I would tend to agree with you on that Uh, i've tried to over the years uh, share stuff up to a point with my my growing daughters and uh, some of my older grandchildren and uh, try and pass on a little bit of where where we were what we've done and what it means since we are about the same age, what, as you were in, I don't know, in Ohio, where you're from, I don't know whether you had middle schools or junior high schools, but as you were in the 7th, 8th, ninth grade, whatever, what did you think of Vietnam, and, and was it something you thought, well, I may serve there someday? Uh, my first recollection of Vietnam was actually as a into my junior year going into my senior year i was 63 uh, and i was down in ramey air force base puerto rico where my father was stationed we had a small class there our senior class was about 78 students 
But the year before, a, a young fellow graduated, went into the Army, 82nd Airborne. Uh, unbeknownst to us, or me anyway, um, and we were friends, he uh, was shipped to Vietnam, and that would have been in late 63, uh, going into 64, and he was killed. And, of course, eventually we heard about that in the school, and uh, my first reaction was, where is Vietnam? Yeah. <laughs> so that was the first time I really heard about it. And then my senior year, my four years in college, you lived with Vietnam. It was on the news constantly. Uh, you couldn't get away from it. And, of course, being a young man and with the draft and everything, there was always that draft board hanging over your head unless you really wanted to go into the service or had, had chosen that as a career and applied and moved forward. But I think most men uh, back then, young fellows, uh, you know, they had to keep the draft uh, out there in front of them and try and build around that and see where they were going to go. So basically high school, four years in college, and then in my case, I graduated from college in June of 68. My junior year and my senior year, my draft board came after me every – we were on a quarter system, every quarter. And we needed to uh, – You had to prove that you were still in. You had to do that. Yeah, forget the form, but, it, but you had to do that. Uh, in the meantime, going into my, into, my, into my early part of my senior year, I wanted to be an aviator, having grown up on air bases with my father being in uh, bomber command. Uh, <clears throat> so I wanted to be an aviator, and I thought, well, the Navy would be fun, fly jets, take off of carriers. Hmm. I applied for the Navy aviation program in the beginning of my senior year in 60, uh, 67, and I didn't quite uh, pass everything that I needed to pass, so I didn't get accepted. So then I went and applied to the Air Force flight training program in uh, the end of uh, 67, going and in January of 68, I was accepted, went out to McDill Air Base and took an all-day flight physical. I was in the University of South Florida in Tampa, Florida. McDill is right across from Tampa there. And uh, passed that. So I was uh, accepted to their full program, which at that time was eight to ten weeks of OCS officer school. And if you pass that and you come out of second lieutenant, and then you go to flight school. Uh, but the earliest they could uh, uh, get me in OCS was in October of uh, 68. So I graduate in June. My draft board comes to me and says, Larry, we need, uh, we need to know your status. Are you going to graduate school or whatever? I said, no, but I've been accepted to the Air Force training program, and it won't start until October. Well, they wouldn't give me a deferment. Make a long story mm. short, I was drafted into July, in July uh, into the United States Army. And that's when my uh, military career started. Um, from being drafted, uh, I was sent to Fort Dix, New Jersey for basic training. Uh, and then I was in advanced infantry training, and that went through the end of uh, November. AIT, I know it well. AIT, <laughs> yes. And I've never been, I've been, I raised in South Florida and Puerto Rico, so I was in warm, humid weather most of my young life, up to 21. And here I am in Fort Dix at 22 years of age, training to go to Vietnam in advanced infantry in the snow. So that was interesting. Uh, some of the training we got there outdoors, uh, preparing us to go to, to Southeast Asia, was uh, not too hard to find tripwires when we were attacking fake villages and, and learn some of the, the tricks they had. But um, anyway, after that, while I was in uh, AIT, they were approaching all the college graduates uh, to give them opportunities to sign on to go to officer's candidate school, OCS. And they had three types of schools that were available. It was infantry, artillery, and armor. 
and they were repeatedly coming to, uh, there were several fellows in my company, or in the company I was in that were uh, college grads. And most of us, as we got closer to the end of AIT, decided, yeah, it's probably a good idea to do this. Maybe we'll stay in country another six months or a year and the war will wind down. So a lot of us volunteered, which and I was one of them, and I thought with my dual degree in math and finance, that, well, at least I'll get artillery. you got to do the angles and use <laughs> mathematics and all that. Uh, rude awakening. Uh, we all came down with uh, infantry. We all ended up going to... 11 Bravo. 11 Bravo. All ended up going to Fort Benning, uh, Georgia for six months of uh, officer candidate school. Came out of that in uh, July of 69. Stationed there for six months. And while I was there, I had opportunity to work with rangers and airborne folks and, and aviators, helicopter pilots. And uh, they, uh, they suggested the... What are the two things that fall out of the sky? Helicopters and paratroopers. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the nice version. Yes, that's the nice version. Uh, pilots that I work with said, "Larry, man, Larry, being infantry and all that, you probably want to look at being an aviator because you did have an interest." Uh, and so make, they they talked me into, if that's the right word, applying for, and I was accepted to flight school. Uh, started that in January of uh, six seventy, uh, and went out to Fort. Uh, Walters, Texas, for four and a half months of primary training, where they, you know, they're weeding you out, they're teaching you the basics. And if you, if you graduate from there, we went to Rucker for another five months, and you transition into the Huey, learn instruments, uh, do a little combat training, flying formations, and in and out of uh, landing zones that are tight. And they were preparing us to go to Vietnam as assault helicopter pilots flying Hueys. I graduated from that in November, but I was fortunate. I uh, was in the close to the top of my class and was offered an opportunity to transition to Chinook CH 47s. I started to ask, did did you even know what a Chinook was? At that time, I did, but I not had not been in one and I not really been around one. But I did know enough to know they were bigger. What what did they? Weren't they the Jolly Green Giants or something? Or well, they we they were real big. They're real long, looked like yeah. a cigar, and they got uh, in uh, tandem rotor, and three uh, blades in the back, and three blades in the front, and they cross over in the middle, and uh, they can carry up to about thirty five troops back then. The B's and the C models, particularly, uh, and they were basically the workhorse for the army. Most of your stuff was external that you would carry in sling loads. Uh, you didn't take troops, at least we didn't when I was in Nam, and I'll get to that later, but we didn't carry troops inside because going into a hot LZ or an area that was under attack, if you got hit and went down, that'd be a lot of men in one, one shot. So we did basically all external loads, sling loads, when we were going in and out of areas that were, uh, what we call them hot LZs or under attack. Supply helicopter to a degree yes exactly we would sling load in stuff like uh um well food ammunition water blivlets building supplies uh sandbags uh, logs uh, timber corrugated uh tin that would go on top of some of the bunkers 105s ammunition for 105s and small they weren't really jeeps they were called mules you might have remembered those little yeah. things the flatbed we we'd uh, ferry those in so did uh, when i know at some point the chinook took on arms and uh, i don't want to say it was used as a gunship but for lack of better words it was it was <laughs> uh there's an interesting story there i uh and it's it's 
I'm a member of VHPA, Vietnam Helicopter Pilots Association. I think they even had a story in one of their magazines way back, so I'm not making this up. But I, I served with the 101st for a year in Vietnam in I-Corps, and we'll come to that a little later. But when I got there, it, it, the story was that a while back, the 101st had converted a couple of Chinooks to gunships. And instead of having the port windows down each side, they exerted... Uh, uh, basically miniguns. They were well-armed down both sides of the Chinook, and the strategy was to take them into an area that you were going to uh, set up a fire base, and they'd fly down, and they'd sit there, and they'd just turn that thing with all these <laughs> guns firing and just be a gun platform. Now, did they have uh, someone firing them, or could you do it? No, the pilots, the pilots would have to obviously fly, but there would be gunners in there. Uh, they weren't all hooked up to one switch. Uh, they may have had a couple because I really don't know how they configured the inside, but it was guns down both sides, and they would just sit there and do a 360 shooting. Okay, well, one other, and I, I'm well known for dumb questions, yes. so there's no, I don't think that anyone has served in the uh, in the Army particularly that doesn't know the sound of a Huey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, for those that were wounded, uh, and I, I love the dust-off pilots that risk their lives going into many, many times going into a hot area to pick up down pilots or, or other soldiers that had been wounded and so forth. Does the Chinook have a distinct sound like the, the Huey? That's a good question. Uh it's a lot noisier. Yeah, wow. <laughs> uh, a Huey's distinct with a wop, 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 wop. Yeah. A Chinook's got eh, probably a much deeper sound to it. Uh, it's not quite a wop, wop, but it's 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 much louder. Wop, 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 wop. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a <laughs> front and back. a mean machine. <laughs> but they can make some good noise. And, you know, a Huey's got a good rotor wash when you get down close. Mm-hmm. But you don't want to be in front of a Chinook's rotor wash when they come down. It can just blow away <laughs> entire areas in front of them, hooches, tents, whatever. It's, it creates quite a windstorm if you flare it when you get close. But, yeah, they're, they're, they're distinct, but they're a little they're different from a Huey. Well, there's, there's no, no sound like a Huey, and there's no sound for the wounded soldier that hears the sound of a, human, a Huey coming towards him. No. And, uh, and then the, the Huey, you're talking about being gunships, uh, the Huey was really sort of the predecessor to the Cobra and, and everything else in that they had turned the Hueys into gunships. Yeah, they had Bs and C models that you used in the early days for gunships, yes, Hueys. And then the Cobras were, uh, came into the inventory and eventually pretty much dominated the latter part of the war, Cobra gunships. Like, there may have still been a few Hueys around, but when I was there the entire year of 71, uh, all our gunship support was Cobras. So. Well, as a young officer... As a young pilot, what did you think when you stepped off the Big Bird to, in Vietnam? Besides, oh, my God, it's hot. <laughs> well, that was one of the things I was going to say. A uh, couple things real quick. We landed in Tonsonut, and when they came on board and opened those doors, all of a sudden, I don't think anybody's been there. Just You're just hit with the uh, humidity, the smells. I mean, it's just it's consuming. 
Uh, and then after you get over that, at least when we landed, uh, guys come in from both sides said, okay, fellas, grab your stuff. You're going out all sides of the plane, get into the hangar. This plane's got to be refueled and out of here quick. Uh, we were under uh, rocket attack warnings, and this was Tonsonute, which was a secure area. But they had those. We didn't get rocketed that day, but they hustled us off, take us into this big hangar. And I've never forgotten this. Uh, and that hangar was huge, open, and down the middle was a rope line. And us guys getting off the plane were put on one side. We were the new guys. And then on the other side was all these fellows that had come in from the bush that were going home that were going to get on the plane. We just got off. And they would, a lot of them would tend to go to that rope line. And, you know, the new guys, you know, they start ribbing us yeah. and everything. And some of these fellows had literally just came out of the bush, and they looked like it. I mean, they were still decked out. with. They turned their stuff in, but, I mean, they, they were just getting out of country. And so here you are standing there. It's hot. It's humid. My first reaction after the humidity and going into that and seeing these guys and us was, oh, my God, I'm in Vietnam. It's for real. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to – we're on that note, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with – Larry, and uh, we'll uh, be right back. Veterans Day is fast approaching. On November 11th, please don't forget to take a few moments to honor and thank those that have served so bravely. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Hello, my name is Rick White, and I'm the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. I want to encourage all Georgia veterans to consider being nominated to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And if you are a Georgia veteran, then the definition of a Georgia veteran is either you were born in the state of Georgia, or you've lived here 10 years, or you were raised your right hand and joined the military in this state, you are considered a Georgia veteran. For further information, go to www.gmbhof.org, or you can contact me at 678-427-0915. We'd love to have your nomination for the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. Thank you so much. And you're back. We're back on America's Web Radio, and our guest is uh, Captain Larry Freeland, and uh, no longer captain, but that's uh, he came out of NAM and came out of the service as a captain, and we certainly respect our officers. And... Um, you know, one of the things that I learned very well was uh, I was told to go catch up with a captain, as a matter of fact, and I got within about, I don't know, five or ten steps of him, and I yelled, Captain, and boy, did I get chewed. I am sir, not captain. You don't call me by my rank. You don't call an officer by his rank. I am sir, and that's it. So, uh I'll just call you, sir. <laughs> you can call I'm, me Larry. <laughs> I'm, I'm afraid you might uh, tell me to drop and give me ten, you know? And, uh, no, I wouldn't do that because I couldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a part of all this old age stuff, you yes. know? Yeah. I'm still looking for the good part of old age. 
I found some of them, but I'm looking for some more. <laughs> but anyway, uh, as we were off the air, uh, you were you mentioned a situation that, uh, and I thought I was pretty informed about Vietnam, but tell us about what you said. Uh, I'm going to just chat a few minutes here about a little operation that occurred in uh, February and March of 1971 called Lom San 719 and Dewey Canyon 2 by the Americans. That was our portion of it. And it uh, occurred up in I-Corps along the DMZ. Um, what happened was they reactivated Quezon, expanded the uh, heliport capacity up that area, and uh, Quezon, they, there was a Jody about Quezon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that was for the Marines, you know, defended that in 68 in Tet. And then sometime after Tet ended and the Marines uh, pushed the NVA out of that area, they closed the base down and evacuated it. Uh, but they reactivated it uh, for this operation. Most people, even back then in the military and today, have probably never heard of this, but the book we'll talk about a little later. I've built a lot of my story, at least the first half of the book, going a little, maybe two thirds of the book around this this particular operation. It was designed to last four months, uh, and you got that. I can tell is an oxymoron. Yes, yeah, because <laughs> uh, it only lasted sixty days, and we'll, we'll get into that in a minute. But. Uh, Two things were going on. One, President Nixon was trying to Vietnamize the war, turn it over to the South Vietnamese. He had started that in 1970, and it was picking up steam at the end of 70 and certainly in 1971. But in the summer of 1970, he authorized an invasion by the Americans to go into Cambodia and take out as many of the NVA and Viet Cong sanctuaries as they could. And uh, so they went in, a massive invasion, uh, armored and uh, helicopter support and bomber support. They went in pretty deep and went on about 45 days, and it was incredibly successful. And they were getting closer to some of the targets that were way into Cambodia. The press got hold of it. Congress got hold of it. He got a beating, and he stopped it and pulled everybody out. But it was a successful operation, although limited, and it did set the... uh, the enemy back uh, considerably down in uh, Four Corps, which is Saigon area, and, and uh, Three Corps a little bit. Uh, and so what they wanted to do is try the same thing up there uh, in the northwest quadrant of South Vietnam along the DMZ and into Laos. Oh, but, we'd never flew into Laos. Uh, no, not, yeah, sure didn't. <laughs> Cambodia either. Or, uh, but, or North Vietnam, but uh, except for the bombers. Uh, but anyway, they uh, designed this thing, this operation uh, down in MACV. It was going to be a combined operation. Since the Americans couldn't go outside of Vietnam anywhere, South Vietnam, they decided to use the South Vietnamese forces, Arvin and Marines, and uh, test Viet- uh, South, uh, Vietnamizing the war, turning the war over to the South. So they committed 22,000 approximately South Vietnamese troops, mostly Arvins, some Marines. But the Arvins, the South Vietnamese, did not have the helicopter uh, force. They had to depend on us. They were, we were starting to train some of them, but they weren't, they weren't ready for it. So they tasked the Americans with providing the uh, helicopter support. Uh, 
and it was about 670-some helicopters assigned to the 101st Division at the time. That's Cobras, Schnooks, Hueys, Loaches, some uh, CH-54s, the Flying Cranes. So the entire aviation assets, basically the 101st, were assigned to support the Vietnamese invasion into Laos. Um, <coughs> it was scheduled to start on uh, February the 1st officially and run for four months. As we got into the operation uh, the first week, it was uh, basically okay. It was designed to go down uh, into Laos, cut the Ho Chi Minh Trail off, and the South Vietnamese were going down a road called Route 9, and it paralleled a little river off to its left. And on both sides of this road in the uh, were, uh, were hills and ridge lines and some fairly high they called them hills but more like a small mountain that pretty much ran on both sides of this road it would think of it as a big valley going well into Laos and they wanted to go in about 60 miles they picked a target way out there I can never pronounce it right but it was something like Tacoma or Tacoma or something like that and that was view, viewed that that was a big NVA base camp for their supplies and every, everything was kind of built around that so they decided that that's what they wanted to do. Go down Route 9, cut a path, get out there, take on any NVA they ran into, and try and get uh, disrupt the trail coming down from uh, North Vietnam. Uh, the first week, the, the plan was to put in a couple fire bases along the ridge lines on each side of Route 9, about 10 miles out, to provide some flank protection. So did, uh, as a Chinook pilot, did you uh, take in, at the fire base, they generally had a 105. Mm-hmm. Did you take them in? or? Yes. Initially, the Hueys would go in, and they would drop the troops off, establish a perimeter and security, and start building that up. Then we would come in with uh, their artillery, their building supplies, extra ammunition, water blivets, food, uh, and then our job was to continually resupply them uh, with sling loads of, of stuff because we could get in a lot of stuff. Depending on the weight, we could have two or three slings hanging underneath us, get in there and just drop them off and get out. Hueys could carry a little bit, but not a lot. And they were more used for, well, they were used for the troop insertions because if a, if a Chinook went down with a lot, 30-some troops, that's a lot of men to lose. But a Huey 7, 8, 9, plus their crew, it's a little less of a loss. So the Hueys bore the brunt of this whole operation. I'll get on that when we talk about my book. I'll, uh, we'll cover that more. But uh, I wrote the book from a standpoint of a Huey pilot because these fellows, they were down on the deck. They had to go in and get the troops in, and they had to try and resupply them until we could get them in. And the first week or so, it went okay. But as the operation got uh, more involved into the second and third week, we were pushing out a little further, setting up fire bases a little further down uh, Route 9 to provide uh, more security as the Arvin troops, mostly mechanized, were going down Route 9. By the end of the second week, they ran into stiff resistance, and it never let up. put that in perspective, there was about 22,000 South Vietnamese troops, and by the end of the second week, going into the third, the NVA had mustered and brought down over 60,000 NVAs wow. to take these fellows on. Uh, a little backstory. There's a good book, and I don't remember the name of it, written a few years back. 
there was a uh, high-level MACV, in MACV headquarters, a high-level South Vietnamese spy working for the North. Mm-hmm. He was passing information on as this split was being planned and executed. So they knew more than we did, basically, when we were flying in this operation. So as it progressed into the second, third week, the uh, NVA knew what we were doing, where we were going, and they would just amass at these places. So as the uh, as the operation continued to unfold, trying to set up these fire bases further out, when the Huey assault companies would take in the troops to try and establish the base before we could get there, they would just be subjected to murderous fire. We were losing Hueys and pilots and crews quite you know routinely. Uh, did they catch the spy? Did they what? Catch the spy? Uh, no, they uh, he they never caught him. Uh, it didn't get unveiled until after the war, hmm. many years after the war. And I think he's still alive. I think he actually he helped write the book or contributed huh. greatly to the book that was written about him and what he did. Uh, but he he certainly didn't do us any favors. Uh, but this operation was designed to last four months. It lasted 60 days. By the end of the third week, it was nothing more than a slugfest. Uh, every helicopter that went in and out of a fire base, regardless of what it was, was getting shot at. Uh, we, th- we pilots uh, felt like when we crossed the border between South Vietnam and Laos, we had a 50-50 chance of flying back across the border after our missions were over. Uh, so, were, I, you, were you prepared for that? No, I had only been in. No, I don't think anybody could have been prepared for that, and I'll explain that in a minute. But when I got there in January, fifth in company on the fifteenth, I only had two weeks to learn the area, and then this operation kicked in at the end of January. Okay, so, okay I got got to stop you there and, and just ask the question. I had two weeks when I got there. I had two weeks to learn the area. Okay, and I know that you haven't stayed active totally, but you still meet with your friends and stuff. But what do you think it would be like today with the advance in technology that we have from GPS up and down the gambit? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know how much electronics were have been added to the Chinook. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have no idea what they had when you were flying them, but... Um, do you think that would make a, a tremendous amount of difference today? If we had that back then for yeah, that operation? Right. Or any operation. Uh, well, yeah, it makes a difference. There's no doubt. Uh, the, the Chinooks we flew were B&C models. The one they got today, I, I, FGH, I'm, they're way out there. They're, they're a totally different animal. If I got, I've sat in the cockpit of one, and I was lost. They're all, they're all screens and all digital and everything, so it's just a massive amount of uh, instrumentation, and, and they can do a lot more by far than, than, than the Schnooks we flew in B and C models. It's kind of like a biplane versus a jet. That's probably <laughs> a stretch, but still. Yeah, big difference, big difference. Now, if we use what they had today flying back then in the situation we were in, probably not much. This, the, the big thing about this 60-day operation is, to put it in perspective, in that 60 days, we were subjected to more firepower than was ever thrown at helicopters in the entire war. Mm. We get down close, you'd be shot at by AK-47s, machine guns, 50, 51 calibers, RPGs, mortar rounds dropping on the LZ, artillery dropping on the LZ. The second month, a lot of those fire bases were being overrun, some of them by tanks, NVA tanks. 
so it was it was just hellacious what what the 20 millimeter and 40 millimeter cannons being fired at us you know this is this is something that you know and going back to the dust-offs but still you wonder where it, it was like when we went into uh desert shield and all of our equipment was od green and they realize gee this sort of sticks out like a sore thumb i think we'll send everything back and get it repainted uh but it's like in vietnam you know it's like they sent helicopters in the hueys and so forth without the armor plating that they needed and they said you know oh who's gonna shoot at a helicopter the enemy and uh did so did you did you all have a reinforced platform at some point in the chinooks in the chinooks yeah we had basically the same thing as the hueys i had a reinforced seat your bottom of your seat the back of the seat had plating armored plating and then on the side you had a little armored plate once you got it all locked in you could pull it out to about here but you're always getting shot at from the front and up so yeah it was nothing up here nothing in front of you so mm. when the closer you got, the more the the more intense it became. Um, I flew a Chinook. Um, we'd go in. The Hueys would go in low, and the Cobras. We would go in high, five, six, seven thousand feet with our sling load. We'd fly out to wherever we were going, the next base, and we would get a yes. We would get above the fire base. We'd be in trail, big distance between each Chinook, usually three to eight Chinooks in trail, depending on the mission. And the lead Chinook, once we got over the base, would literally get there, nose down 30 degrees at least, spiral all the way down. And we got real close to the ground. We'd just shake that Chinook till it stabilized, hit the, hit the LZ, not land, but just punch off our stuff and pull that thrust rod in and just get out of there as fast as we I got to ask, how long did it take anybody to learn that maneuver? Well, I never that, that maneuver I learned on the job. We weren't taught that maneuver. Uh, when I got over to my unit, we started using that as a, the intensity of the fire got worse. Normally, you'd go in on a nice approach, way up here, drop enough, but and bring it in. But when they were under fire, it was better to get in and spiral down. It was harder for the twenty millimeter and the forty <laughs> millimeter. To it hit probably you. scared the hell out of the um, the crew. The, well, not only the crew, but the uh, the uh, North Vietnamese. When they saw that helicopter spiraling and wondering, oh, gee, I wonder if this is going to blow up in my face. <laughs> yeah, he's going to crash on the base there. <laughs> now, that was a unique, uh, unique maneuver. We uh, we did quite a few of those. Did, did uh, I assume that was recorded at some point or place or for posterity? Uh, as, as far as I, I, I assume so, I don't really know. I don't know if they... They didn't teach us that in flight school. I never did that after this operation. I mean, because I still had basically nine, almost nine and a half months left. And the rest of the stuff we did after Lomson was pretty re- routine and more normal. Okay, how many, uh, how many of your uh, crew jumped off and were sick? <laughs> uh, not very many. We would have a few every once in a while. But, uh, yeah, the first couple times, it. I mean, we were dropping out of the sky at 1,500 feet per minute or more and constantly had to move our controls to keep the uh, rotor system from going into the red line. 
And when you got down there, you really had to pull back to slow it down. It's like trying to ride a bunkin' bronco, just get it <laughs> under control. So it was an intense uh, few minutes getting down there. Could uh, I don't know why, but this scene keeps flashing in my head. Couldn't the Chinook fly horizontal? Or vertical, or whatever you want to call it. Not then. Uh, Chinook was basically uh, level. Oh, okay. Um, we could, you know, we could. I don't know. If there, I don't know how what the degree was, but we could. Do, we could not do a loop. We could not spar. We could not uh, barrel roll. That kind of stuff. Uh, uh, we were basically stand up. Uh, I mean, vertical, if you will. Uh, but we could do some pretty good angles. And I think we could get up to 160 knots with a Chinook back then. Uh, tip it over, trim it up, and with wind at your back, you get 160, 170 knots at, at altitude. Or on the ground, close to the ground, too, but you, know, you had to be more careful down there. <laughs> a little less forgiving. With, yeah, there, was a, there were a few bushes, huh? Yeah, yeah. We didn't do much nap of the earth in a Chinook. We did some. Um, one quick story, which seems to get a lot of uh, 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 laughter at some points, or just you really didn't do that kind of thing. I'd only been in country two weeks, and uh, learning how uh, with my unit, you know, getting acquainted with the area. We were uh, flying out of Fubai Way, and the Ashaw Valley was off to our left. Ashaw was everybody's heard of that. If you, you know, when you learn about the history of Vietnam, South Vietnam, and the war. <laughs> But the, the the valley there had mountains four or five thousand feet high, and mm. the hundred first had fire bases at certain points up and down the Ashall at the heights of the mountains, and we would routinely supply those. I think it was I only been in country a couple of days, and I was flying with one of the most experienced captains. But up at that time, that was monsoons; everything would get covered and shrouded in in, in fog and, and stuff, and. We had a mission to go out and resupply a fire base uh, at 4,000-plus feet on one of the mountaintops, and they needed it bad because they hadn't been able to get them anything in. We couldn't do sling loads. We had to load it into the Chinook. So if we could get one Chinook in, we could get them a lot of supplies. So we were tasked with doing that. We flew out there, and we had to stay below the, the cloud cover, and it was a thousand feet if it was that and we would fly down going down the valley and we get to where we're supposed to go and keep in mind this was a cabin been there and he knew the area he'd been flying that area for 10 11 months now we get to where he said okay uh i was a lieutenant he said okay lieutenant we're going to hover up the side of that mountain till we get to the fire base i look over at him i look up and i said I didn't say it. What are you crazy? Can't see anything. You know, it's all shrouded. Well, make a long story short, we get next to the mountain, and he's got the gunner hanging out and the crew chief hanging out here, and we literally hover up the side of that mountain using our rotor wash to blow away the small the fog and the mist enough to see the treetops. And we're going up until we get to the top, and then he knows we, the fire base is here in our rotor blades, and they're guiding us. And we finally get close enough to where we, we can see the fire base right in front of us practically. We sat down on the area where we're supposed to sit, unload it, and they had a couple wounded guys on that first trip, and we took them out. We ended up doing that th- two or three more times that day because when it gets clouded up there that, in Monsoon. That day? Yeah, that day. It just stays that way. Wow. Yeah, they were they were really low. They hadn't been able to get anybody up there. So when did you go from right to left seat? Uh, good question. Somewhere towards the end of uh, March, 
uh, I, I'd been shot down a few times, and we all had been shot up and everything. And make a long story short, I was uh, elevated AC pretty quick. So you have to be careful about when you say shot down and shot up, particularly shot up in Vietnam. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> so, but I think it was towards the uh, late March. We were in the tail end of uh, Lam San. And so this was how many months of experience at that point? Well, I've been in country at the end of March in my unit, two and a half months. Wow. And I'd flown doing this whole, this whole time. Not every day. Uh, no, not every day, but flown during the whole two months of the operation when it was my turn to fly. Did you do much uh, in your turn to fly? Did you do much uh, evac? Not from the fire bases because we, we couldn't land. Uh, but when the Hueys would bring back the Vietnamese soldiers that were wounded, they'd bring them back to different helipads near Quezon or at Quezon. Yeah, we would load up 25 or 30 uh, South Vietnamese stretchers at a time, and we'd fly them out of the Quezon area back to Quang Tree, where there was some medical facilities to really you know, deal with them because there were just so many of them we were bringing back, starting with the, probably the third week. Uh, for the people who don't know, this 60-day operation turning in, it was basically, first week was okay, second week started to go bad, third week it was out of control, became a route, then a total, uh, I mean a, a, a retreat, then a total route. There's pictures out there where the Hueys would go in to pull out the Vietnamese wounded, and the, and the healthy guys would jump on the skids and try and get on the helicopter just to get out of there so the last month it was just horrific what was going on because we ended up having to pull all the all the fire bases troops out and at different points where was biden during this that sounds like one of his operations <laughs> yeah yeah he probably had something to do with the planning <laughs> uh, but <laughs> yeah that's how it went wow and then we spent now is that story in in your book yes my book um is about the first well at least Two, a half to maybe two-thirds covers a lot of that. And the last third, at least, covers, uh, spans some other operations. It basically covers a year in a short time, uh, covers a year. Per- one of the reasons, that one of the, what I would try to do in this book is, uh, you want me to start talking about that a little bit? You want to catch it the next? Yeah, let's, uh, let's do another commercial, and uh, we'll be back with, Larry Freeland, right after this. Veterans Day is fast approaching. On November 11th, please don't forget to take a few moments to honor and thank those that have served so bravely. Hello, my name is Rick White, and I'm the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. I want to encourage all Georgia veterans to consider being nominated to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And if you are a Georgia veteran, and the definition of a Georgia veteran is either you were born in the state of Georgia, or you've lived here 10 years, or you were raised your right hand and joined the military in this state, you are considered a Georgia veteran. For further information, go to www.gmbhof.org, or you can contact me at 678-427-0915. We'd love to have your nomination for the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. Thank you so much. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. 
And we do appreciate you listening to America's Web Radio. And uh, I must add that we tell the truth here. And we've been accused of not telling the truth. But I can assure you that our shows, like with Captain Larry Freeland this morning, and all of our shows... We pride ourselves on telling the truth. We pride ourselves on working with veterans. And we pride ourselves that if you want to hear the truth, you can tune in to America's Web Radio anytime, and you will get the truth. So with that being said, let's uh, get back with Captain Larry Freeland. And uh, I, I only address it because I have so much respect for one, officers, and two, any that served in Nam. And, uh, you know, the thank God the greeting has changed at the air, airports now from what it was coming back from Nam. But anyway, let's talk about your book. And you have some uh, facts there or figures? Yeah, let me just share this real quick. I was talking earlier about Lamson and the 60-day invasion, but I want to put this in perspective, and then I'll move on to my book. The 101st had about 660 helicopters total dedicated operation. As the operation went on, we were losing quite a few, so we augmented that and brought in about another 100 from other units. At the height of the operation, there was about 760 helicopters dedicated to it. Of those 760 helicopters, 108 were shot down in Laos and not recovered, 108. 618 were battle damaged to some extent. Of those, 20% were so badly shot up we couldn't even use them. We just parked them and used them for scrap. Uh, During that 60 days, which was the most intense uh, helicopter war, uh, most intense period of time for helicopters to fly in because of everything that we had to put up with, 72 helicopter crew members were killed in 60 days, 59 were wounded, and 11 were missing in, uh, missing in action and not recovered. So it was a staggering number of helicopters and men that were, uh, and that's not counting the men that, were, uh, that uh, we, didn't, we didn't consider them wounded if they came back across the border and landed at Quezon, even though they were wounded in Laos. So uh, it, was, it was a staggering number of helicopters and a staggering, staggering number of men hurt in a 60-day period. There's, there's no reason that you should know this name, but <laughs> again, I have a, I have a peanut for a brain, so questions come floating in. Uh, a guy named Larry Hill has been on, or not Larry Hill, Jeff Hill has been on uh, the show a number of times, or not a number of times, two or three times, mm-hmm. and um, he was a refueling pilot. And this is really dumb. Can a Chinook be refueled? Not back then, but today, I don't know if all of them can, but the special ops uh, Chinook CH-47s like they used in Afghanistan, some of those can be. they got a real long tube that runs out, and they can just refuel them in the air. Uh, But back then we couldn't, at least not the Chinooks. The uh, Jolly Greens that the Air Force and the Navy, well, the Air Force, flew i think the navy too i believe at that time they had refueling in the air capability matter of fact i'm pretty sure they did but i I won't swear to that but the army didn't at that time so didn't know didn't know thank you sir sure well let me talk a minute about two minutes about my book uh this is it chariots in the sky 
uh, was uh, published in the end of April. It's been out there. It's available, and I'll cover that shortly. Uh, it's doing quite well. I'm, I'm proud of it. If you go to my website, you can see uh, many of the reviews I've gotten from individuals, organizations. A member of the VHPA, they reviewed it. A member of the Vietnam Veterans, they reviewed it. And your website is? Uh, my website is lowercase larryfreeland.com. Uh, and you can look, you be a little bit about the book, you can get a little bit about my history, uh, and then you can see a whole bunch of the reviews and, and so on and so forth. It's a, And then if you still want to buy the book, you can buy the book from my site. I don't get an extra nickel out of it. There's five sites on there you can go to. The biggest one is uh, uh, is, is Amazon. A lot of people go to that. You can, then there's Barnes & Noble, and there's BAM, Books a Million, and there's Cabot, and then there's Indie. So there's five sites that you could pull up if you use any one of them for your book. So you can go to your local bookstore. They're probably not carrying it, but you could order it through your local bookstore if you wanted to support them. Uh, <clears throat> but the book is uh, it's a histor- I wrote it as a historical fiction. Um, I wanted to do that because I wanted to write a story that I'd carried with me, I could say since the war, but uh, I wanted to tell a story about the brave men that flew in this operation particularly Um, and um, I wanted to tell it from the perspective of a Huey pilot. The Huey pilots the Cobra pilots and the Loach pilots, they spent those 60 days down low in and out constantly there was one fire base called LZ Lolo on the first day they were inserting and that was the furthest they went out before we went and leapfrogged way into Laos uh 11 helicopters, American helicopters, were shot down in the first day trying to insert the South Vietnamese military onto the area called Lolo, which was going to be a major fire base on the first day. These fellows were in and out of that constantly. As a Chinook pilot, we flew in high, but once we got down lower, we were in the same intensity, but not as long as they were. But I want to tell this story from a Huey assault pilot's perspective. I wanted it to be historical fiction. I wanted the reader to get into the story and hopefully early on find themselves the the main character. My main character is uh, called, uh, he's a captain, uh, Taylor St. James, and they call him TJ. He's an infantry officer and a helicopter pilot, U.S. assault company pilot. And I w- created this fictional TJ, and he's a composite of a lot of people, but it, I wanted him to epitomize what a helicopter pilot was. And I wanted to put him through everything I could in the book to let the reader, once they identified with TJ, feel his pain, feel his anxiety, feel his uh, emotion uh, and senses of everything that was going on around him, both on, in, when he was flying and when he was on the ground and so on. So, uh, And the characters are all fictional. Now the units involved are uh, historically true, 101st and, and so on. The Operation Lamson is true in uh, real event. Many of the events depicted uh, I heard about, saw, participated in uh, while I was there. And the events following the, the Lamson that close out the last third or half of the book are individual events that... Uh, a helicopter pilot would have experienced at some point, most of us, uh, probably all of us, and I wanted the, re- the reader to feel that. So, You know, I've never asked this question, even with uh, dust-offs or pilots or just uh, Huey or Cobra pilots, but 
you know we're very i say we're very involved that that might be an overstatement but we are involved with trying to help vets any way we can particularly vietnam and and those coming back from uh Desert Chill and Desert Storm that suffer from uh, PTSD. Mm-hmm. How many, and, and this is sort of, a, it's not your area, but uh, being in the association that you're in with the other pilots and so forth, how many pilots suffer from PTSD? Do you have any kind of idea about that? Uh, I, I couldn't give you a figure. I could only make a general statement that I suspect a lot of them had some some of it. I don't see how anyone could go through what a pilot went through or a ground. Anyone who goes through combat, I just don't see how they won't have some PTSD at some point in their life. You you may come out and get out of the service and say, oh, it's, you know, I'm fine, but I think it tends to come back maybe later, maybe right out of the gate. It, it's just something that's that, I, that happens. I will mention one other thing along the lines of PTSD. We work with a doctor that's uh, in uh, Columbus, Georgia, and uh, he's a dentist and also a medical doctor. Mm-hmm. And uh, he has, if you're listening to the show, I don't care when, but if you suffer from nightmares and PTS dreams at night and so forth and just can't sleep, he's got something for you and if you're interested in finding out about it you can contact me at david at america's web radio and i'll put you in touch with the doctor and uh it works and it's a it's a i don't want to say a cure but it relieves you from the pressure that of ptsd and you can get a night's sleep and uh he's got proof of everything i'm saying and it's better than 99 percent effective so if you're suffering from sleepless nights due to PTSD, send me an email. Well, when I got out of the service in 73, September of 73, I went into banking and started that career. I didn't have any real issues while I was still in the service. I guess I was too busy being still being a captain and, and doing all my work. But when I got out and I started transitioning into civilian life for about two years there, that was a tough transition for me, uh, not just being in the military but going into civilian life. And I went into banking, and I had went through an 18-month management program, and I went from you know, commanding troops, flying helicopters, and being shot at occasionally to being a teller, mm-hmm. learning how to be a teller and a customer service rep. I'm not knocking it. That was all part of the training program, but that was a little bit of a transition. Well, we work with uh, – are you familiar with the name Rocky Blyer? I am familiar with that for some reason. He's a, he was a pro football player, won uh, three uh, Super Bowls with the Pittsburgh yeah. team, yeah. and uh, he was also wounded in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's involved very heavily with warriors mm-hmm. to citizens, mm-hmm. and uh, we're in turn involved with it as well. And uh, my goodness, we have run out of time. Oh, my. <laughs> That's probably why Brett came in to hit me upside the head. <laughs> Larry, thank you. Uh, one question. Will you come back? Yes, absolutely. Or have I've been too obnoxious for you? Not at all. I, I enjoy I really appreciate you having me here. This has been great. Well, we will uh, have you back on. And I uh, want to thank you again for coming in today on a rainy day. And uh, we will uh, be back with more after these messages. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.